I'm uh, station manager Dan Aykroyd. Uh, Jane, you ignorant slut. It's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. 3-605, 0 .10, 0 .20, 0 .22, 0 0.24, 0 0.26, 0 0.50, 0 0.70, 0 0.80. It specifies clean shirt, short hair, tie, press trousers, sports jacket or suit, and leather shoes, preferably with a high shine on them. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dan Aykroyd Podcast, and I'm your host, Scott White. And before we get into our subject of today's podcast, I was told that my intro was boring and long. And I think they may be talking about the intro that uh, Patreon puts before my podcast, just to uh, let you know what a good job Patreon does. Uh, so I can't do anything about that, but I can It's the Scott White toasting the Dan Aykroyd podcast. I am the Scott White. And this is the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. Excitement, chills, thrills, running down your spine. I hope that's, uh, I hope that's not uh, too boring for anybody. I think I'm going to keep all that in. Anyway, uh, what's uh, the subject of the podcast this time? It's the movie Sneakers with Dan Aykroyd, Robert Redford, Ben Kingsley, Mary McDonald, River Phoenix, Sidney Poitier, David Strathairn, and a few more names that I will get to in the podcast. Uh, my last two podcasts were uh, focusing mainly on early Dan Aykroyd with The Second City and Saturday Night Live, so this is well into his career. He and the others are supporting actors to Robert Redford. Everybody on that cover besides David Strathairn, has either won or been nominated for an Academy Award. That's how good this cast is. That being said, this is Robert Redford's movie, first, last, and always. Everybody else is just a supporting, uh, I don't know, a little more than cameos, but they're supporting actors in this movie. But this movie is Robert Redford all the way. And watching this movie, 1992, Robert Redford, well into his career, you can still see the charm. You can still see why he is a movie American international icon. Sneakers is a heist movie. What I liked about Sneakers was it was an easy-to-follow heist movie. I'm not the brightest guy in the world. And sometimes when I watch these heist movies, I just don't understand what's going on. Where did this person go? Where did this, why did this happen? This, that, always. This is a very A to B to C heist movie. It has pockets of humor. It has pockets of suspense. It has pockets of action. But you can always follow it from A to B to C, which is one thing that I liked about this movie. And let's get started. And the movie starts in 1969 on a wintry day. And you see uh, two young men, and they're at this school library. What they're doing is they're taking money from big accounts like the Republican Party and giving that money to the Black Panthers. And they're hacking into Richard Nixon's private, uh, private bank account and giving that money to the legalization of marijuana. And one it keeps calling this other guy Marty. And this guy, this is a young Robert Redford and a young other person that I will tell you about later in the podcast. But the person they got to play, the young Robert Redford, looks exactly like a young Robert Redford. 
If this guy was not acting, he could be a Robert Redford impersonator. They got, they got the, the person who did that dead on. The other guy in there is a young David Paymer. You, you may know him from Mr. Saturday Night. Um, just uh, He's just a, a really uh, good character actor that you see in lots and lots of things. So I recognize David Paymer, and he plays a young version of this other person, which we're going to meet later in the podcast, later in the movie. So they're doing all this hacking, and Robert Redford assures his friend that they won't get caught, and they want to get something to eat, and Robert Redford says, how about some pizza? And then the other guy does a magic trick with a coin in his hand and says, pick one, and if you and the loser has to buy. Well, Robert Redford picks the hand that doesn't have the coin, so he has to go buy pizza, and then after Robert Redford leaves... The uh, the guy shows, David Pamer shows that his other hand was empty too. So he, he pulled a, a fast one on Robert Redford to get him to go get pizza, which is going to be a mistake, going to be a huge mistake. Robert Redford leaves. He gets into his van. It's caked in snow. It won't snart. And then he sees the lights. And then he hears the sirens. And he sees the police converge on the school library where they're doing all their hacking. And he tries to run in and he tries to warn his friend, but it's too late. The police bust in, they arrest him, they drag him away, and then boom, we cut to present day. So we see we're in a van with Robert Redford, Sidney Poitier, and David Strathairn. Just to let you know, David Strathairn is playing blind in this movie. And it looks like they're in the middle of another heist. They're talking to Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd is fiddling with some circuits inside the bank. They're, they're, they're posted outside of a bank, we find out. And Dan Aykroyd is fiddling with some circuits in there. And Dan Aykroyd, I don't know, and this is our first introduction to Dan Aykroyd, and he's playing... He must have loved playing this character. And I don't know if they wrote him this way or if he brought this to this character. But Dan Aykroyd in real life is a a conspiracy believer, a UFO believer, just a believer of things that other people don't believe. He's a believer in ghosts. That's why he wrote Ghostbusters. He believes in all that. He believes all that stuff is real. So his character is not only, you know, a, a, a computer whiz, but he is also a conspiracy theorist. And he's just babbling on and on and on about, about all these conspiracy theories, how the moon landing was faked, and how, uh, you know, how uh, the uh, CIA caused earthquakes in Paraguay. It, it's all in there. And Sidney Poitier plays an ex-FBI agent on this team. And the inter- interaction between Poitier and Aykroyd is very, very fun because Aykroyd has all these outrageous conspiracy theories and Sidney Poitier is no nonsense. He is down to business. Just those two playing off each other is very, very fun to watch. Well, we're going through all this and all of a sudden Dan Aykroyd hits a certain circuit and David Strathairn says, that's it, that's the circuit. And that circuit, what it does is deactivates the burglar alarm. And after the de- burglar alarm is deactivated, Sidney Poitier and Robert Redford run across the street and meet River Phoenix in the alley. We've met our five main leads, all within the first you know, five, ten minutes of the movie. River Phoenix is also in this group. 
And River Phoenix was brought into this movie for his youth. Everybody else in this movie is older, but they brought in River Phoenix hoping that he would bring in the youth uh, into the movie theater. So it's uh, in the alleyway. It's Robert Redford, Sidney Poitier, and River Phoenix. And you know what we have here? We have a tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Sidney Poitier and River Phoenix starred in the movie Little Nikita together. After they all meet in the alley, David Strathairn from the van activates the fire alarm. And the fire alarm allows all three, River Phoenix, Sidney Poitier, and Robert Redford, to get into the bank. It's sort of a cover. And after a few minutes, the security guard there... Uh, the bumbling security guard calls headquarters, and what they've already done is they've tapped into the phone lines, so the security guard is talking to David Strathairn in the van. So he's saying he needs help. David Strathairn say help is coming. The fire alarm goes off. All this is just a ruse. It's just a very, it was a very complicated but very simple setup ruse for us to see how everybody got into the bank. And after they get into the bank, Robert Redford has opened an account in this bank and they get into their computer system and he transfers $100,000 into his bank account at the bank. We cut to the next day and Robert Redford is withdrawing the $100,000 from his account saying that he didn't feel his money was safe there. So the whole thing was an elaborate scheme to get $100,000 into Robert Redford's bank account. The, the opening scene, it's, it's, it's very, very fun. It's very, very light. It's very, very quick. They, they give us in a, in a, in a quick, you know, quick shots that everybody in this group is a little off. Everybody in this group is great at their job. And everybody in this group would probably not, be, not work very well on their own. That's what we get from this opening scene. And Robert Redford, what we think, walks out of the bank with his $100,000. But no, 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 no. He does not walk out of the bank. He walks upstairs into the offices of the bank and lays the $100,000 on the table and tells them how weak their security system is. So the bank paid them to break into the bank so to tell them how other people could not break into the bank. And that's basically what this group does. They find weaknesses in security systems. That's the, 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 the essence of the whole group is right there. After he has exposed it, he goes, gets his check, and the woman giving him his check says, well, it may pay, but it doesn't pay very well. That tells us that even though they're really, really good at their job, they're not getting paid really, really good at their job. We cut back to a loft apartment. And this apartment is the headquarters of the group. And this scene reminded me a lot of Ghostbusters. Because Robert Redford was uh, asking where the typed up report is for the bank. And Dan Aykroyd says, well, I'll have to do the typing because we haven't paid our typist in eight weeks. And that reminds me of the scene. It looked a lot like the firehouse in Ghostbusters where Dan Aykroyd tells Bill Murray, uh, this elegant feast is the last of the petty cash. So I thought that was a nice comparison of scenes right there. Two men show up. River Phoenix runs in. There's two men here. Robert Redford goes, shoes? And River Phoenix goes, very expensive. So that's how they can tell if people are legit, by their shoes. Take that information as you will, people. If somebody's wearing expensive shoes, they have money. And these two guys come in and they say they're national security agents. And they need Robert Redford's gang to steal a black box. It turns out this mathematician has invented something. 
with the help of Russia. And they need to get that box because they don't know what Russia is up to. Robert Redford is leery because he says he doesn't work for the government. These two pull out an old wanted poster of him as his old identity back in college. So they know who he really is. Because all this time since college, Robert Redford has been going under a false identity. Knowing that he is up against it, he goes sees the two, and he arranges to steal the black box from this mathematician. And he's going to get $175,000. And uh, during this... Uh, during this exchange, we briefly hear about his partner at the beginning of the film. His partner, who got arrested, got 12 years in jail, and one of the guys say, you know what happened. So it's a little ambivalent right there. We don't know what's happening right now. Now, this is a fun part of the movie. They go back, and usually this is the part of the movie where it's all for one and one for all. Robert Redford tells his team, the feds know who he is. And Robert Redford tells the team, if we don't do this, they're going to put me in jail. And this is usually where the movie, where the hero or the antagonist says, you'd be doing me a favor. I'm not asking you guys to do this. I can't tell you guys to do this. As a favor to me, if you could do this to help me stay out of jail, I would appreciate it. And that's usually the scene in the movie where the guys will just all gather around their leader and like, you know what, boss? We'll do it. We'll do it for you. Well, that's not what happens in this movie. All of them want the money, and all of them couldn't give a shit what happened to Robert Redford. They're all in it for the money, which was, I thought, kind of refreshing. We didn't get the rah-rah, do-it-for-me speech. It's like, hey, rah-rah, we're doing it for money, and we happen to save your ass? Hey, that's a bonus. So that was very nice to see, and it was very, very well acted on all of them. Kudos to all you Academy Award and Emmy Award and BAFTA-winning actors. Robert Redford has to go to a speech of this mathematician, he, so he wants to get a feel of it. And he just offhandedly says, I think I'm going to take Liz. And all of the other guys stop and turn. This is just a very simple and a very nice way to show us that evidently he and Liz had a past. We cut to a conservatory where Mary McDonald is teaching a child how to play piano. And Robert Redford walks in and tells her that he needs her help to tell him what the mathematician is talking about. And initially she refuses. She keeps saying to him, we're not getting back together. And Robert Redford's like, I know we're not getting back together. I just need your help. She's just about to walk out of the room when Robert Redford says, they know who I am. Apparently Liz was from his past and she knew all the stuff that he did in the 60s, knew his true identity, knew what he had to do. And with this information, she agrees to go to this lecture with Robert Redford. And we cut to the lecture, and this is this mathematician going on and on and on. And there's a nice little flirting scene between Mary McDonald and Robert Redford. It's very, very nice. It's very, very subtle, but it works very, very well. Not heavy-handed, but it shows that each person still cares about each other, even though they still might be leery of each other. It was very, very nice, very, very subtle. Afterwards, they're gathered around, the mathematician is talking, and they get approached by this Russian named Greg. Evidently, Greg is an old friend, and he hugs Robert Redford, and he hugs Mary McDonnell, and invites them to a concert. And Mary McDonnell looks at him and says, I never trusted that man. <laughs> is it foreshadowing? Is it not? We'll get to that. The mathematician leaves, Robert Redford gathers his gang, and uh, they all, they're all set up outside the mathematician's workroom. And so they're spying on him right now. They're trying to find out 
what this black box is, where is this black box, and how can they get And all of a sudden, while they're spying on him, a female mathematician walks in, and they start making out and just getting hot and heavy. And there's a very nice scene between Robert Redford and Sidney Poitier about looking in, seeing what's going on. Very, the, the, the comedy in this movie is very, very subtle, and it works very, very well. All these actors know how to low play the comedy. There's no over-the-top, there's no wacky comedy in this. It's, it's subtle comedy, and it fits the mood, and it fits the theme of this movie perfectly. They don't try to overdo it with the comedy. They just nail it. They have the right amount. They close the shades, so they go home because there's all they can do is hear him having sex, and they can't see him having sex. <laughs> they're back at the loft, and they're, this, they're playing back the tape that they got and they're trying to figure out how to break in. How, where does he have this? And then the blind man comes to the rescue. He says, listen. And during the exchange, the female mathematician says, I've called your service over and over and over again, and you never return my calls. And then they realize he has an answering machine. So why would he have a service and an answering machine? And then it hits them. Whatever they're looking for is in the answering machine which is kind of archaic nowadays. This movie is very, very archaic and very, very technically advanced all at the same time. A lot of stuff you look at and you go, wow, that's cool. And a lot of stuff you look at it like, wow, that's old. Now they have to get into the building and steal his answering machine. An elaborate plan. Robert Redford is walking into his building in the lobby and River Phoenix is there delivering Drano, 12 cases of Drano. And I can't help but think, was Drano... An advertiser in this movie because not only do you see Drano visibly on all the boxes, uh, River Phoenix says the word Drano, liquid Drano, says it like four or five times. He's arguing with the guy at the desk. Robert Redford is trying to get in. He's holding these balloons and this present and this cake. He's trying to get in. So it's the natural, let's confuse this guy. Let's bombard this guy just so he'll do what I want just to get me off his back. And it works. And Robert Redford gets buzzed into this mathematician's building. And he goes up to the mathematician's room, and he's just about to pick the lock, and he realizes it's an electronic, it's a punch code lock, which is, like, nowadays you see that a lot, but back then it was new new technology. And it's, it's unpickable, it's unbreakable, no way to get in, no way to bypass it. And then Dan Aykroyd says, don't worry, I had a friend in Vietnam. He was on the other side, but he has a way to get past these electronic locks. And there's like 30 seconds of Robert Redford just taking information. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. 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 And he kicks the door in. Very, very funny. Very, very subtle. Once again, they have nailed the comedy bit in this movie. He goes in, and as he is stealing the answering machine, the female mathematician, the mathematician's lover, walks in. Now Robert Redford has to think on his feet. Or he has to think on his feet and he has to get help because he has a bug in his ear. So Sidney Poitier and David Strathairn are helping him, feeding him lines to tell this woman what to do. And he tells her that he is a private detective hired by the mathematician's wife to find out if he's cheating. This scene just proves how charming and how likable and why Robert Redford is who he is. It's a very, very simple scene. But he plays it perfectly. He plays it between he coming up with his own ideas and getting information fed into his ear 
it flows perfectly. I'm not doing the scene justice. If you see the movie and you see the scene, you'll know what I'm talking about, how it's just done perfectly. The back and forth between him and the van, the back and forth between him and the lover, it's, it's all going on at the same time, but it all looks perfectly, perfectly flawless on Robert Redford's head. That's why Robert Redford is who he is. So he gets out of that jam and he takes the box back to the, back to the flat, and they're having a party. They're having a party. We got the box, and we're going to get $175,000. And then we see a montage of all the guys dancing with Mary McDonald. And there's a scene uh, between uh, Sidney Poitier's wife. He has invited, Sidney Poitier has invited his wife and his little girl to this party. And there's a scene of Dan Aykroyd talking about cow mutilation with Sidney Poitier's wife in the movie. And Sidney Poitier just takes him away, takes her away. It's like, stop talking to this man. So Dan Aykroyd is really, really grating on Sidney Poitier's nerves with all of his with all of his theories. And now let's take a break with a word from one of our sponsors. Are you worried about the Red Menace? What will happen if they attack? How will you protect your family? Well, fear no more, paranoid mom. You can protect your whole family at home with Dr. Carmichael's lead, white, and blue house paint. Dr. Carmichael's lead, white, and blue house paint. As any good American knows, lead is the number one enemy of radioactive fallout. And with Dr. Carmichael's lead, white, and blue house paint, you can encase your whole house in a protective lead bubble. Sleep well knowing that your house will deflect any radioactive fallout with Dr. Carmichael's lead, white, and blue house paint. Dr. Carmichael's lead, white, and blue house paint, helping to defeat communism one house at a time. To hear more about Dr. Carmichael's products, tune in to Dr. Carmichael's Family Funtime Radio Hour. Dr. Carmichael, whose number one priority is family. And now back to the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. Once again, folks, I am doing this podcast in August in Houston with no air conditioning so you can get the greatest sound possible out of this podcast. So I am sweating up a storm, but I am going to keep on going for you, my listening public, all 25 of you. Well, as the party's going on, David Strathairn takes the box that they've that they stole and they start fiddling with it and it and after fiddling with it for a while, they realize it is the ultimate code breaker. They can break any code. Air traffic controller, uh, banks, nothing is safe with this decoder. And let me, and I'm just going to go back for a second, too. Also, during this party, we find out that the partner that Robert Redford had at the beginning of the film has died in prison. That was information given to us. Now that they know what kind of object they have, they all get a little paranoid because they realize that anybody who had this would have a ton of power. No information would be safe if they had this decoder. And Mary McDonald goes to leave, and Sidney Poitier is like, no, you're not. And this is the first time we see Sidney Poitier's experience as an FBI director. He's very, very subtle. He's very, very low-key. But he makes you know that he's in charge. And she wants to go, and he's like, you know what? You're the only one who knew who he was, so somebody must have talked. It could have been you. And she's taken aback. Robert Redford is about to defend her, but then he realizes that Sidney Poitier is right. And this was a nice scene. Usually in a scene like this, the other people would stand up to Sidney Poitier and saying, you're being paranoid. But they realize that's why they've hired him. They've hired him. He's sort of the security. He's sort of the muscle of the group. And that's why they hired him. So they let him do his job. That was refreshing to see in this movie. There was no bickering among among the people like, oh, no, she's one of us. She's fine. Another twist. Nice to see twist in this movie. Next morning comes. 
It's time for the drop-off. They're supposed to drop off the box to the two people uh, from the government. And while Robert Redford goes to do that, Sidney Poitier is waiting at the car. And in the car, he sees a paper that says that the mathematician was murdered. So now Sidney Poitier knows something is up. He calls Robert Redford back to the car, and they drive away. We think that the two guys are going to follow him, but they don't. They go back to the flat, and they start retracing their steps, and they realize that everything that the that these two government people have told them have been fake. Everything has just been a smoke screen. None of it has been true. And now they're now they're pissed. They don't know what to do. It's like, are they in danger? They're certainly not getting paid. Other than that, they don't like to be played fools. They don't know who they've given this to. Did they? And they think they've given it to Russia, gotten a code breaker to break all of our codes here in America. Robert Redford remembers that his Russian friend Greg is going to a concert, so he goes there and he sort of kidnaps Greg. And I thought this was an odd scene because they're at this formal concert and everybody's wearing tuxedos. The men are wearing tuxedos. Women are wearing gowns. Robert Redford walks in in a trench coat and a t-shirt, loafers and socks, and white socks, and nobody bothers to stop him. And nobody bothers to tell him that he is underdressed. And he gets a gun and he takes his friend Greg to a swimming pool. This was a little confusing part of the movie. I don't know where they were. First of all, they were in a concert hall. And now he's interrogating them at a swimming pool. And then they go to Greg's limo. They're driving along in the limo. Greg convinces him that he's not the one, the Russians are not the one who took the code breaking uh, device. And they have mugshots of all uh, American operatives that they have tried to turn or have tried to bribe or who they have bribed. Robert Redford comes across one of the guys who has tricked him in the mugshots. And Greg the Russian's like, uh, he won't really tell him what's going on, but he's like, you got to disappear. You got to get out of here. While this is happening, the FBI has pulled over the limo and has uh, ordered Robert Redford out of the car. They take Robert Redford out of the car. They take his gun and then they shoot Greg and they shoot Greg's driver. And one of the guy that he has identified, one of the bad agency men comes up and smacks him in his face and puts him in the trunk of a car and they drive off. And they drive and they drive and they drive and then Robert Redford wakes up in this office building. And here's where we meet Ben Kingsley. And Ben Kingsley was the other guy that Robert Redford was working with at the beginning of the film. This is his old friend, Ben Kingsley. And so he is the one who has put all this together. He is actually working for the mob. When he was in jail, he helped out a couple of mobsters. And once they got out, they faked his death and was able to get him out of jail. And now he works for the mob. He is basically the accountant for the mob. And the reason he says he needed the code breaker was, is that to protect the mob's finances from the government. Robert Redford's not buying it. And Ben Kingsley then breaks it down. He's still, Ben Kingsley is still the guy from 1969. He still wants no wealth. He wants everybody to be equal. Nobody has wealth. Nobody has power. Everybody is equal. And he's going to use this device to break the codes and make that true. And Robert Redford says him, calls him crazy. And this is two big powerhouse actors. This is Robert Redford and this is Ben Kingsley going toe-to-toe. And it's excellent just seeing them play off each other. There is so many great actors in this movie. It's not like a, an Al Pacino movie, you know. I'll burn this place down with a flamethrower, Attica. 
I know a lot of movies are like that, and a lot of movies are great because of that, but there's no big over-the-top scene. This movie is just well-acted, well-constructed, well-written scenes, just one after the other that flows in one after the other, and it's just an enjoyable movie to watch because of that. It's just everybody being a pro, it's just everybody doing their best, and it's just coming through on the screen. Now, while they are talking, Ben Kingsley updates Robert Redford's information into the computer. That way the police will be able to find him and pin those murders onto him because they used his gun to to gun down the Russian and the driver. And after that, they knock him out and put him in the trunk and, and drop him off somewhere. And then after that scene, he comes back to Mary. He has to come back to Mary and uh, sort of beg Mary to help him. And while she's helping him, this is a nice touching scene as well. He says he's sorry. And she thinks it's just because of the recent trouble. And no, he grabs her hand and he looks in her eyes and he goes, I'm sorry. And this is telling you that he is sorry for all the crap he put her through in the past. And she sees this in his eyes and she accepts his apology. Now Robert Redford has to try to save his own skin again. And then they call the National Security Agency. And he wants to make a deal. If he turns himself in, can he guarantee their safety? They've set up couple of things. One, they've set up so the security agency can't track the phone. They've also set up a sort of a lie detector on the phone so they can tell if the person on the other end is lying or not. And it basically comes down to they're lying. They can't protect Robert Redford. And Robert Redford realizes that the only way that he can get out of this safe is if he has the device with him to give to the security agency. Now they have to find out where Ben Kingsley is, where it is, uh, where the component is, and how to get it. And once again, this is where David Strathairn comes in. He has Robert Redford concentrate on what he heard while he was in the trunk of the car. Through just elimination and through Robert Redford remembering, they're able to track down Ben Kingsley's office to this fake toy factory. It says it's a toy factory, but they realize it's not a toy factory. So once again, they set up surveillance and they realize that this place is a fortress. You need a car, you need to swipe a card to get in through the front door. To get into a certain wing of the building, you need a voice code. So you have to say a certain code into the computer to let you in. And there's also motion detectors and there's also heat detectors. So this thing is Fort Knox on steroids. And they have to figure out how to break each and every security system in this building so they can get uh, that decoder back. And they start. It's not quite a montage, but we jump back and forth about them figuring things out. I will condense this because it's a fun part of the movie, but it, it, it may be a little dry here. They realize that there's a man working next to Ben Kingsley's office, and that's the man they're going to target. They're going to get him by sending Mary McDowell on a date with him because he's in the computer dating. And she's going to get him to say the phrase that he needs to say to open up the security wing of his office. She's also going to steal his security card. And while in his office, they're going to crawl through the ceiling to get into Ben Kingsley's office. Once in Ben Kingsley's office, they've realized they can defeat the motion detector if they crank up the temperature in the room to 98 degrees. Robert Redford has to move very, very slowly, but if he does, he won't set off any of the alarms. So now it's all come together. It's the day of the heist. River Phoenix has to get inside so he can get to the basement so he can crank up the temperature of the, of the office. So he asks if he can use the toilet, 
and he walks into the bathroom and he crawls up into the ceiling and it sort of reminded me of Die Hard with him crawling up there running through the ceiling vents. Now this was a nice scene because usually in these movies you see the incompetent security guard and we actually have a competent security guard. He's watching the bathroom and he notices that River Phoenix hasn't come out so he actually walks in and checks it out and realizes that he's not in there and he's about to call the head of security when he sees River Phoenix quote unquote outside. But it's not River Phoenix outside. It's Dan Aykroyd playing River Phoenix. So they've set up a double for River Phoenix. And you know what we're going to go to right now? Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Dan Aykroyd and River Phoenix both did cameos in Indiana Jones movies. We all know that River Phoenix played young Indiana Jones in number three, but did you know that Dan Aykroyd had a small, 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 small part in Indiana Jones number two, Temple of Doom? It's true. Look it up. I'm not lying to you. Also, on a not-so-happy tangent, we all know what happened between Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, and at this point in River Phoenix's career, people were noticing that he was getting a little out of control and uh, so Dan Aykroyd actually tried to befriend River Phoenix and tried to, you know, tell him what happened to Belushi and all that. And as we know, it, it didn't get through to River Phoenix. But Dan Aykroyd really tried to, tried to get that point home to River Phoenix that he really needs to turn his life around. We cut to Mary McDowell. And she is now on a date with the guy in the office next door. And she's already gotten his voice print on a tape, and now she's at his apartment to steal his swipey card. And the guy who does this, the guy she's on a date with, is Stephen Tobolowski. And I don't know if the name means anything to you, but he is the man from Groundhog Day. Once again, what are we going on? Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. That's right. He was in Groundhog Day with Bill Murray and also in this movie with Dan Aykroyd. So he's performed with two not ready for primetime players. Mary McDonald slips out his security card to Dan Aykroyd. He drives away. Now we cut back to the building. It's nighttime. Robert Redford uses the card to get in. And this was a little weird part. He swipes his card and a little note comes up saying, you know, giving the name of the guy's card and what time he entered the building. And I thought this was going to come back later. And he swipes it again and it comes up again. So this card tells you what time a person comes into the building. He gets into the office. River Phoenix is downstairs. He's turned up the temperature in Ben Kingsley's office. So Robert Redford crawls through the ceiling and now he's moving. It's really weird. He's moving extremely slow because if he moves any quicker, the alarms will sound. But it's very, very tension-filled. It's There's not a lot happening, but there's a lot happening. And it was a nice scene to watch. We cut back to the date that Mary McDonald is on. And through a series of unfortunate events, the guy she's on a date with finds out that she's not real, and he drives her to the toy factory because he thinks that she is trying to steal stuff from his office. He puts it all together, making him say certain words, you know, always be interested in where he works and stuff like that. 
they drive and they pull up. So Dan Aykroyd and Sidney Poitier in the van, they see him pull up and uh, they're like, uh, you know, they tell Robert Redford, you got to get out of there because there's trouble coming. And this guy, he brings in Mary McDonald and he starts, you know, he starts ruckusing. It's like, this woman is trying to steal stuff from my office and blah, 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 blee, blee, blee. And she's trying to deflect as much as she can. And then Ben Kingsley shows up with his two thugs and he just doesn't know what's up. And he's like, let's take a look at his office. And as they get into his office, Robert Redford has taken the item, gotten out of Ben Kingsley's office, back into that guy's office, and back into the ceiling. So he's just putting the ceiling tile back in as Ben Kingsley and everybody enters this guy's office. And this guy checks his office. Now, here's where I thought that stuff would come in because it tells you that, you know, he entered the building at this point and he entered the building at that point. Why didn't they just check that? And then they would realize that this guy is telling the truth that somebody has used his car to get into this building, but they don't. And they basically are going to let Mary McDonald go. And she offhandedly says, that's the last time I go on to a computer date. And then Ben Kingsley's like, why would this, why would a computer put this woman with that man? Sort of insulting to the guy, but true. And then he realizes he's been had, he checks it, he checks that, you know, the the code breaker is gone, and all the alarms go off. (laughs) Robert Redford and River Phoenix are caught in the ceiling tiles. And Dan Aykroyd and Sidney Poitier and David Strathairn, they're in the van, they don't know what to do. They've lost visual contact with them, and all they have is audio contact. They're trying to get them out, they're trying to lead them through through the ceiling ducts. And another diehard scene comes up, so because one of the one of Ben Kingsley thugs starts shooting the ceiling with uh, with a shotgun, very very uh, uh, reminiscent of Die Hard, where they're shooting the ceiling with a machine gun, very very close, very very nice. Ben Kingsley comes over the loudspeakers. You guys got to stop, and he and he appeals to Robert Redford on a friendship lever. It's like if you give up, I'll let you go. All you have to do is give me the code breaker. And because he has Mary at this time, and Robert Redford knows that he can't risk her life. Robert Redford, as he's crawling through, he gets River Phoenix on the earpiece that they're all wearing, and he's like, I'm turning myself in. And then he turns himself in, and Ben Kingsley, it's sort of, this is sort of like a James Bond uh, moment here. Robert Redford has the item in a backpack. Just take it! Ben Kingsley, just take it! But he doesn't take it. He leaves it with Robert Redford, and he leaves the room, and he tells his two thugs to kill Robert Redford. So this is totally James Bond right here, where you don't take the item that you want, and you leave the room while somebody else does your dirty work. And you know what's going to happen, because Robert Redford just yells, Now! And River Phoenix comes crashing through the ceiling and falls on top of him, and they get into a big scuffle, and uh, Robert Redford gets a little revenge on the guy who punched him in the face. He punches him in the face. So they knock him out, and now they're running, now they're escaping, and they're on the roof. Now, while they're trying to escape, the van is captured by security guards of the agency. And one of the guys who has captured the van makes a racial slur towards uh, Sidney Poitier. And you just see the look in Sidney Poitier's eyes. Now, David Strathairn was in the back, so they don't know that he's in the van. These two security guards take Dan Aykroyd and Sidney Poitier out, and they're pointing their guns at him. And Sidney Poitier just looks at Dan Aykroyd and says, do you know why I was thrown out of the FBI? Because of my temper. And at that moment, 
David Strathairn, with the help of Robert Redford, drives the van away because he's blind, so Robert Redford is telling him how to drive. He's got binoculars showing him, you know, where to turn left, where to turn right. Now, this is reminiscent of Scent of a Woman, where uh, Chris McDonald is telling Al Pacino how to drive. Turn left here, turn right here. It's happening right here in this movie. Turn left here, turn right here. I don't know if it's good or bad that your movie gets a lot of comparisons to great movies. Because not a lot of people say, I saw that in sneakers. But it is a, uh, uh, um, but I'll get to the end. I'll get to them. Anyway, uh, just my opinion. And while David Strathairn drives away in the van, Sidney Poitier just knocks the two guys out. And he calls them a couple of motherfuckers. And I guess this is why the movie is rated PG-13. He's like, don't mess with me, you motherfuckers. And I don't think it was needed. It was to show that Sidney Poitier is a tough guy. But we got that. We knew that Sidney Poitier was a tough guy, you know, just through the looks he gave people and just how he handled himself and the volume of his voice. You know, we didn't need him to call these guys a couple of motherfuckers to prove how tough he was. We all knew that. And David Strathairn drives up to the building and River Phoenix and Mary McDonald, they go down the ladder. And now Robert Redford's about to go down the ladder and Ben Kingsley stops him. And he says, give me my device. And if Ben Kingsley would have taken it in the first place, None of this would have mattered. But they're on the roof, and Robert Redford gives him the answering machine. And Ben Kingsley sort of begs him not to go. I think Ben Kingsley at this point in his life, he has all this power, he has all this intelligence, but he doesn't have friends. And I think when it comes right down to it, Ben Kingsley misses his friend, Robert Redford. And Robert Redford says, the only way you're going to stop me is to shoot me. And... Ben Kingsley just doesn't have it in him to shoot his friend. As Robert Redford climbs down the ladder, Ben Kingsley opens the box and realizes, it's a fake answering machine! That's right, earlier in the movie, Dan Aykroyd gave Robert Redford a fake answering machine to practice walking two inches a second with, and that's what he gave to Ben Kingsley. And they're driving away, and they're all gathered around the real answering machine, and they have this device in their hand. And they get back to their loft apartment, and at the loft apartment, waiting back at the loft apartment, is the real National Security Agency. And it's headed by, who else? James Earl Jones. I recognized his voice briefly when Robert Redford was talking to him. It was sort of garbled, but I knew who it was. Because this is only the third time. I saw this movie once when it came out in the theaters, once when I bought the DVD, and that was like six, seven years ago, and once now. So I kind of forgot that James Earl Jones was in this movie until I heard his voice on the telephone. But yes, James Earl Jones shows up, and he wants the decoder. And Robert Redford puts together that this decoder isn't to break foreign nations' codes. It's to break our own codes. The go- our government is spying on other branches of the government. And uh, so the National Security Agency doesn't want the other branches to know that they have this device and they have this spying ability. And all of them, and now here is a, a very, very light, a very, very funny scene where before they hand over the decoding device, all of them, Robert Redford wants his record clean. And James Earl Jones agrees. And then Dan Aykroyd steps up and says, I want a Winnebago. And James Earl Jones is like, what? And he's like, I want a Winnebago. And River Phoenix wants the phone number of one of the agencies that, you know, everybody puts in a request. It's Christmas Day, as Robert Redford puts it. You can ask for anything you want. And they do. And James Earl Jones takes the decoder 
And Robert Redford says to him, you know it doesn't work. And James Earl Jones says, it doesn't matter that it doesn't work. We just have to make sure that nobody knows this exists. And the reason it doesn't work is as James Earl Jones leaves, Robert Redford shows Mary McDonnell a piece of the decoder. He has slipped it out. So that's why it doesn't work. And I don't know when he did this or why he would do this. He didn't know that the uh, security agency would be waiting for him back at his apartment. But anyway, he does this. And the two look at each other and they smile. What I liked about this relationship is they were past lovers. And during the movie, it's all set up that they're supposed to get back together at the end. But you don't see them get back together at the end. You see them, they still care about each other. They still maybe even love each other. But they don't go, they, we don't see them get back into the romantic relationship that we thought that might happen. That happens in most movies. Hey, the old flame, I'm going to try to get back with her. Uh, you know, at the end, we get a kiss. None of that happens. Once again, a nice, very, very, this movie has, falls out of cliches very, very well. This movie, you're expecting a cliche and you don't get a cliche. And that is the best non-cliche ever. I think I said that correctly. And the movie ends much like the beginning of the movie where we see a newscast about the Republican Party is out of money. Whoever made this movie uh, is obviously a, a Democrat because they take a lot of shots and a lot of <laughs> money from the Republican Party in this movie. And they've given it to charities and then the movie ends and that's it. And that was Sneakers, 1992. Very, very good movie. It's over two hours long, but it doesn't feel over two hours long. The performances from everybody in here are wonderful. You don't get bogged down with the technical stuff of the caper. They give you just enough information so you know what's going on, but you're not confused and you're not bored. I don't know why this movie isn't bigger than it is, because it has an all-star cast, and it's very, very... Uh, maybe some people thought it was boring, but I enjoyed it. And as for the Dan Aykroyd performance... This is a role made for Dan Aykroyd, a conspiracy theorist who loves computers. Oh, man, he must have loved every single moment of this movie. And every single moment he's on screen, he makes the most of it. You believe him as this guy who believes in all this wacky stuff, because in real life, he believes in all this wacky stuff. I think this is just the real version of Dan Aykroyd just inserted into a movie, and they didn't have to put any... You know, he didn't have to do any acting in this. He was just speaking what he thought was real because he thinks it's real. Sneakers, 1992. If you find it, pick it up. See it. You're going to enjoy this movie. And once again, uh, it's a River Phoenix movie, and it was always nice to see him. He didn't, like, he died young, so we don't have a lot of his work around. It was nice to, it was nice to see him again. Sometimes you forget about River Phoenix, but... He was a good actor, and he just had a lot of problems, and it was just, once again, nice to see him in this movie. And it's the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. Thank you guys for watching, and I will see you next time. Oh, before I go, once again, if you enjoy this podcast, check out my Patreon page, patreon.com backslash Scott White, and you can contribute to this podcast or any of the projects that I'm working on. And if you want to know what projects I'm working on, visit my website, scottyblanco.com, and that'll give you links on everything I'm working on right now. So, once again, Scott White for the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. See you next time.